grab your Bibles. We're back in the Gospel of John today. And as you're turning to John, I want to invite the middle schoolers to stand up right where they are. And you guys can head back with Pastor Joe uh, to your, a class that we've designed especially for you. Okay, the rest of us return into the Gospel of John. Um, Last week in our study, we took some time out in the very beginning of our time, and we reminded one another of why we've been at this. We've been at this for almost a year and a half now, walking section by section through the Gospel of John. And we spent some time last week saying, what, what, what's this all about? And so we said from day one, all the way back from day one, we said that our, our goal in this study was going to be to, to unpack, to discover the identity and the mission of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus, and what did he accomplish? Okay, and so this week, today, as, we, as, we, as we're going to finish up chapter 18, what we're going to find is that literally, literally, sometimes I use that word and, I'm not, and it's not literal. This time I mean literally, Jesus' identity and his mission is going on trial. He's going to be put on trial in, in, in the world's leading legal system of his day. He is going to, you know, the Jewish leaders who are trying to incriminate him and put him to death through the cross through, by, by being crucified, they're going to lead him into the Roman courtroom and into a, the, the Roman governor, Pilate, and they're going to try to discern who is this guy and what is he all about. That's what Pilate's going to try to figure out. And so we have this, this really unique opportunity to, to, to discover the identity and the mission of Jesus Christ. Um, and what we're going to read, these, these next 12, 13 verses we're going to read together, um, both fascinating scene and, and, and heartbreaking. And you'll, you'll see what I mean as we get to it. But that's all the chit-chat. That's all the introduction I'm going to give you this morning because we have a whole, whole lot to talk about once we read through this. And so let me just pray, ask God to bless our study, and then we'll dive into the text. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful that we have the freedom uh, here to open it and, and talk together and to celebrate who you are. We thank you for the, this written record that we have to just kind of swim in and, and see the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done. I pray, Father, that as we, as we look at this now, that you would uh, make clear to us uh, truth, that, that you'd help us to see the gospel. Um, Father, uh, we're, we're going to, as you know, we're going to talk about some pretty um, deep things and uh, some stuff that is... Uh, um, it's, it's still pretty early on a Sunday morning to talk about some of these things we're going to talk about. Lord, I just pray that you'd open our minds and our hearts to hear truth, help us to understand um, who you are and what you've done. I just pray, Father, that you would be honored in our, in our study, in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John 18, we're going to start in verse 28, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? 
After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So there were about a dozen different ways we could come at this, this passage today. About a dozen different things we could pull out of this text. Um, I took about 20 pages of notes this week as I was, as I was studying this. Um, but there was just one thing. There was one thing that, that kept rising above the rest. was one thing that kept emanating out of my study. And it wasn't, by the way, just one thing that was coming out of the study. It was this one thing that also kept coming out in my own personal reading and in my own interactions outside in the community. There was just one thing that just kept coming up. And you're going to find it in verse 38. Verse 38. As Jesus is standing on trial in the world's leading legal system of the day, this, this again, this incredibly tragic scene unfolds. Pilate asks Jesus during the trial, he says three words, what is truth? It's an incredibly profound statement, right? That's, a, that's an intense question. What is truth? Here's the tragic part. Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? And then walks away without waiting for an answer. Is there anything more heartbreaking and tragic than that? Pilate asks, what is truth? To the one who could not only give, the only one qualified to give him that answer, but who actually embodies the answer. He is the truth. But Pilate walks away without waiting for the answer. And not only is that really telling of, of, of Pilate, but in my opinion, the, the, the whole legal system of that day, and the whole culture for that matter. This Roman judge who has been tasked, who has been assigned to, to try cases and to cast judgments in this moment of incredible honesty, this, this stark, uh, brief moment of clarity and transparency basically says, I don't even know what truth is. A judge in the world's leading legal system of the day says, I don't even know what truth is. And it's kind of easy to be kind of taken aback by that and kind of shake your head at that. But you know what struck me so much this week is... is is realizing that in our day, 2,000 years later, in, in our culture, not only do we too, as a, as a society, not have an answer to that question, but we actually take pride in that. We actually pride ourselves in that. We, you know, there is no truth. There is no universal. There is no you know, absolute truth. It's like an anthem of our society. It's like a banner we hang above our culture. In fact, back in the early 90s, back in 92, I read this week in a, in a, a ruling by the Supreme Court, in a case, they put out a statement that basically sums up our whole cultural mindset on this. The, the, the Supreme Court said this, at the heart of liberty, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence and meaning in the universe. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of meaning, existence, and the universe. Okay, so that's our Supreme Court. That's the highest courts in our lands. They say what it really means to be free at the very core of our liberty, of our freedom, is the ability for you to define what's true for you, for you to define what, what's true and right and good for you. There is no absolute truth. There is no universal truth. And by the way, I'm going to use the word, the phrase absolute truth a lot this morning. Absolute truth is just simply something that is true absolutely. Okay? It's, it's objective. It's not subjective. It's, it's regardless of your culture, regardless of your upbringing, regardless of your personal preference, regardless of your feelings or your circumstance. It, this thing is absolutely true. Um, and this is something that we've completely rejected in our culture, isn't it? Um, and it's, by the way, it's not just something we've, that people out there, it's, it's even the church. I told you guys last month about a, a study that Barna put out that said that less than half of Christians today believe in absolute truth. 
less than half. Okay, believe, believe that anything can be absolutely true. That means, you know, when, when you know, they hear Jesus make comments like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Less than half of Christians would say, um, meh, it's true for me, but I'm not going to say it's going to be true for everybody. Jesus is the way to God for me, but that, he's not necessarily the way to God for everybody. Okay, there, there is no uh, uh, regard for absolute truth in our day. Over 50% of Christians say that nothing can be absolutely true. I mean, think about that. Think about the implications of that. John says, God is love. Over half of the Christians out there would say, well, that's not absolutely true. Think about the implications of that. So what I'd like to do with our time today is, is to look at the nature of truth. And I can already see your eyes glaze over. You're like, really, we're not talking about the nature of truth today? Um, I'm telling you, this is important for every person here. Because every single one of us try to discern truth. Every single one of us are on the search for truth, trying to determine what is true. Whether we realize it or not, young or old, my one-year-old is trying to determine truth. Gabriel, my little baby, is trying to discern what is true. Truth is this, this. Truth is by definition an explanation that conforms with reality. An explanation that conforms with reality. So when my baby, uh, Gabriel, reaches out and starts to play with my face right? Or, or, or touches a picture or touches a, t- a toy. Basically, he's just investigating the reality around him. He's just trying to determine what is true about the reality around him. What does it feel like? What would happen if I hit it, right? What, what, how heavy is, is this toy? What would happen when I throw it on the kitchen floor? He tries to determine that one a lot, <laughs> right? Our, we're, we're searching for truth when our, when our astronomers are, are studying the night sky. They're trying to determine what is true about our universe, we're all trying to determine what's true. And it's the same with the spiritual realm. And here's my hope. My hope is that each one of us here will see that Jesus is the truth and that the truth can set you free. Jesus is the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is that which explains reality. Jesus is the ultimate reality. It's through Jesus that we live and we move and we have our being. That true life is lived in him, for him, by him, and through him. But for us to, to, to get to that conclusion, for us to reach that point, we need to kind of wade through some murky waters first. What I'd like to do for today is I want, to, I want to unpack three arguments that our culture has against absolute truth. Here's the first argument that we're going to talk about. First argument, belief in an absolute truth is restrictive and therefore undermines our freedom. Belief is in, in an absolute truth restricts us limits us, and therefore undermines our freedom. So I just told you that my thesis for this morning was that Jesus is the truth and the truth can set you free. But there are many people in our day who would laugh at that. So what are you you talking about? A belief in an absolute truth can set you free because truth by nature is exclusive. All right, so truth by nature is exclusive. So when you believe, if you were to believe that something is right and true, that automatically means that, you're believe, that, that you believe that something else that contradicts that is wrong. Okay, if you believe that that living a certain way is right, then you're saying that every other way to live would be wrong. Therefore, you're putting restrictions on yourself and freedom by our culture's definition is a lack of restrictions. No restriction. I can do whatever I want. So to be free, there can be no absolute truth. Did you follow the reasoning there? Do you follow the logic? That's I'll keep going. Let, let me let me let me try to explain it this way. I started reading a book this uh, uh, this last week by a guy named Luke Ferry, and he's a, a French philosopher. He's not a Christian. Um, 
And in the beginning of the book, he, he tries to break down the, the uh, fundamental purpose of philosophy. Fundamental, he, says, he says, you know, there's all kinds of methods of philosophy and, and, and goals and, and just different facets of philosophy. He said, but really, what it all comes down to, he said, if you break it all down, underlying it all is this one primary question that is trying to be answered. How can I be saved? That's what this philosopher says. He says, that, that's the one fundamental question underlying it all. How can I be saved? Philosophy is all about providing answers to life's tough questions. And the biggest question of all, he says, uh, is what do we do with death? How do you deal with death? Um, you know, because we all recognize we're finite human beings that given enough time, we, we have a 100% mortality rate in this room, right? Um, given enough time in our world, there's a 100% mortality rate. We'll all, we're all going to die, right? It's a, very, it's a very upbeat book so far. Um, so the, the ultimate question of philosophy is, how do you live today knowing you're going to die in 40 years? How in the world can, can you live with any sense of morality or hope or purpose knowing that in 40 years it's going to be all over? And so he says what Christians say, what Christians say, um, the way that they can approach today with, any some, you know, with some kind of morals and hope and purpose is, is they say, well, because death is not the end. Death isn't the end. That one day everything will be made right. That all injustices will be accounted for. That one day there will be a day of reckoning. That one day everything you've lost will be restored. One day every, you know, all of your relationships are going to be restored again. Right? All of your investments that you make in this life are going to carry on into eternity. It matters what you do today. That's what Christians say, which I think he's pretty spot on. And so he says, you know, if that's the case, why don't we just all become Christians? Because that sounds awesome. Right? That sounds great. And what Luke Ferry basically says, and he's not a Christian, I said, he, what he basically says is, well, because it's intellectual suicide. Um, he says, well, because he gives two reasons for that. He said, number one, it's just too good to be true. That's his primary argument, actually. It's too good to be true. I mean, that sounds awesome. God becoming your substitute, taking the punishment for your sins, you know, forgiving you, not because of anything you've done, but by just simply by placing your faith in, in, in Jesus, the Son of God. That's, it's too good to be true. God loving you as a father loves his children, too good to be true. His second, his second reason is this. He said, as soon as you take on faith uh, in your life, you automatically sacrifice freedom. When you take on faith, you sacrifice freedom. You restrict yourself. Because Christians say, again, that there is some purpose that, that, that we were all created for. There is a way to live. There is a way to think. There is a way to be. And that, by definition, again, is exclusive. Because you're saying that other ways are wrong. That, by definition, then, is exclusive. So you're placing limits on yourself. You're placing restrictions upon yourself. And freedom, again, by definition, by our culture, that is, means no restrictions. Everything goes. Anything's okay. And so Luke Ferry says, basically, you have to choose. It's faith or it's freedom. Faith in an absolute truth or freedom. And Luke Ferry says, for me and my house, we will choose freedom. Um, he says, basically, if you believe in truth, you're imprisoning yourself. It's the enemy of freedom to have faith. So you might be surprised. I want to challenge that this morning. I want to challenge that way of thinking. Um, he's right about one thing. Faith does bring restrictions. Faith does restrict you, doesn't it? Belief in an absolute truth does restrict you. Of course it does. But what I want to, want to challenge this morning is not with does faith bring restrictions, but is freedom actually the absence of restriction? Does freedom actually mean no restrictions? There's a verse in the Bible that says, the love of Christ constrains us. Some translations say it compels us. Literally the word, the love of Christ restricts us is what it says. The love of Christ restricts us. And so Ferry would say, look, the love of Christ has just put you in a little box. It's limited you. It's restricted you. You're imprisoned. 
But friends, freedom, this is, this, is my, this is my answer to that argument. Freedom is not having a lack of restrictions, a lack of limitations. Freedom means living within the right restrictions. Are you still with me? Freedom, means, freedom does not mean having no restrictions. Freedom means living within the right restrictions. And I'll give you some examples. Okay? So I'm 32 right now, 30 years old. And I know within the grand scheme of things, I'm, I'm a young man. Uh, I will say, though, my body is beginning to change. All right? My body's beginning to change. I can no longer eat anything I want without consequences. All right? I can no longer eat at any time of the day or night without some major consequences. Right? It, it is sad. It's very sad. Um, right? I can't eat anything I want whenever I want, however much of it I want. I now have to restrict my freedom. I have to restrict my freedom. I have to give up my freedom to eat anything I want, when I want it, however much of it I want, if I want to be released, launched into a richer and a deeper life of freedom, of good health and long life. You see? Now, I don't have to. I could just eat anything I want whenever I want. No restrictions. But then I lose energy and vitality and health and probably even some years off of my life. So the restriction of my freedom here launches me into a richer and a deeper and more vital life of freedom. Or another one of my, another one of my favorite examples is this. I've, I've said this here before. I could take this iPad that I'm using for my notes, and I have the freedom to use it for whatever I want. Right? It's my iPad. I could, I could use it for whatever I want. I could use it as a doorstop. Okay? It'd get banged up. It'd get you know, broken. It'd get cracked. It'd fall apart. But I, I'm completely free to use it. Or I could use it as a cutting board. You guys ever see that commercial, the grandpa using the iPad as a cutting board? I'm, I'm free to use my iPad as a cutting board. Okay? I'm free to, to, to use it like that. However, if I will learn and honor what the creators at Apple designed this device to be and do, it can unlock all of this amazing potential. It, it can operate and, and, and be, be used in all kinds of these amazing ways if I use it for what it was designed to be used for, right? So, so I'm free to do whatever I want with it. I could use it as a Frisbee. I could throw it to Joe back there or Joel, right? I could use it as a Frisbee if I want. I'm free to do that. However, if I restrict its use, which by the way, this is hard to do with kids, but if I can restrict its use for what it was designed for, then the potential can be unlocked, with this device. The potential for this device is incredible. And that's the same for you and me. Or, or, you, can, or you can take fish for another example. I could go to a lake and I could reach in and I can grab a fish. And I can liberate it from its watery dungeon. Watery prison, right? It's in prison. It's restricted in that water. So I'm going to take it out and I'm going to take it out of that, that, restriction, that restricted area. And I can liberate it. And I can put it on the grass. But you wouldn't say that that fish is living freely, right? That fish is living in freedom. A fish out on the grass has lost its freedom to live, to move, to thrive. If, if that fish wants to live, move, and thrive, it has to live within the restriction, or the, 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 the restrictions you know, determined by its nature, determined by its design. And friends, again, the same is with you and me. In him, in Jesus, we live and we move and we have our being. We are free to separate ourselves from the truth of Christ. But when we do, we're the fish out of water. We're flopping around on the grass. We're free to jump away. But that, is that what we call freedom? 
Freedom is not the absence of restrictions. It means to live within the right restrictions that fit with the nature of who we were designed to be. Okay, that's argument number one. Argument number two. Everyone should have the chance to choose what is true, right, and good for them. Okay, we all heard this, right? Plenty of times. Everybody should have the, should have the chance to choose what is true, right, and good for them. So you, you might be here and you might be, uh, you know, say, well, okay, I get the first one. That makes sense. Restrictions necessary for freedom. You know, freedom doesn't mean absence of restriction. Absence of restriction, that's anarchy. Okay, that's not freedom. That's anarchy. Uh, so we get that. Restrictions are not necessary for freedom. But we should all be able to choose what those restrictions are. You don't tell me how to live my life. It's my life. I, bon Jovi. Right? Every time, I always think of that song. It's my life. Right? I don't want anybody telling me what I can and cannot do. It's wrong for you to tell me what is true and right and good for me. I'll give you a, a real-life example of this argument. So last week, I was grabbing coffee at Moonbeans, my favorite coffee shop just down the street here. I was grabbing coffee at Moonbeans, and it was in the morning. And uh, if you've been in there, you know there's a, there's a TV right above the cash register. And so there was some morning show uh, being played, and, and, and I only caught the end of this interview, but they, the interviewer was, was talking to uh, these um, two authors, and they had written a book uh, about Scientology. They were exposing Scientology. And so the, the last question that the interviewer asked the authors was this. He said, so what, you know, what do you want people to take away from this book? And so the author's response was, was interesting. The author said, well, the universal theme of this book is the danger of being imprisoned by any belief system. The universal theme of the book is, is the danger of being imprisoned by any belief system. So I thought, wow, that was an interesting statement. So I looked over at the guys that were, um, uh, there, were there were three guys behind the counter, the guys that, that owned the place at Moomins, and I've been trying to develop a relationship with them and praying for them. They know I'm a Christian. And, and uh, so I looked over at them, and I said to them, I said, so wow, what an, what an interesting statement to make, um, the danger of being imprisoned by any belief system. And I said, you know, the, the interesting thing is we all have belief systems. We all have a belief system. The, the belief that a, that a belief system is dangerous is a belief system. That's the irony. And so I said, I said we all have belief systems. Uh, and then the guy, one of the guys in the, behind the counter said, well, some of our belief systems are more flexible than others. Um, you know, he knows, he knows I'm a Christian, so he's, you know, I know what he's saying. Uh, he said, some of our belief systems are more flexible than others. I said, well, I said, my, my point is just that we all have worldviews. We all have a worldview that shapes our morality and, and, and how we look at life and what, you know, any hope we have for the future and how we handle good days and bad days. And then in an obvious attempt to kind of change the conversation, because, I mean, people are coming up to grab coffee. That was not the time and place for a deep philosophical discussion, right? So uh, in an obvious attempt to change the conversation, he said, well, you know, that, that L. Rod Hubbard guy, he's the guy who um, started Scientology. That L. Rod Hubbard guy, he, you know, he's, he was a jerk. I mean, he just, he said he, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm editing the, the, the language here. Uh, he, he, was a, he was a total jerk. He said he was caught on tape saying that he was, he was starting the religion just to make money. Okay? And so, you know, I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't continue the conversation. But here, here uh, I, he was kind of done with the conversation. So that's fine. So I walked away. Here's what I took away from that little back and forth, that little interaction. Here's what was so interesting. Is this, this guy behind uh, the counter there um, basically puffs up his chest and says, well, some of us have belief systems that are more flexible than others, right? In other words, he's basically saying some of us aren't quite so narrow-minded as you, so dogmatic as you. Some of us don't believe that our way is the only way, Philip. So, you know, some of us, you know, you know don't, don't believe that, uh, you know, we, you have to determine what's true and right and good for me. And then in the very next sentence, he says, that L. Ron Hubbard, how dare he steal other people's money? 
How dare he do you know, these things? Basically condemns R. Ron Hubbard for, for doing something that, that he deemed as inherently wrong. What went, went through my mind was, man, where'd all that flexibility go? Do you understand? By the way, I love Moonbeans. I, I go buy coffee there this afternoon. Um, I'm not putting the, putting the coffee shop down. I was there this morning and yesterday. <laughs> Here's my point. On one hand, you hear people crying out that it is terribly narrow-minded and dogmatic to believe in a right and wrong that transcends our personal preference and our culture. But in the very next breath, they turn around and say, don't steal, don't lie, don't murder, life is sacred. We, we reject moral and true absolutes, but then we get frustrated when people aren't absolutely moral. Do you see the contradiction? I told you guys years ago, just after the, the 2008 financial crisis, um, Ravi Zacharias is one of my favorite Christian thinkers. He, he, he tells a story about how he, got a, 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 he had a phone interview with some paper, I don't remember who it was. Some journalist called him and wanted to ask about you know, kind of get his opinion on, you know, the, the corruption that had led to basically this financial crash in 2008. And so Robbie Zacharias picked up the phone um, when the interviewer called him, and, and, and he, he said, you know, before we start, can I just ask you one question? And the journalist said, okay. Um, and, and basically, Robbie said, he said this, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, for decades now, for decades, in our Ivy League institutions and in our universities, we've been teaching our young people that morality is all relative, that you get to choose what's true for you. You get to choose what's right for you. You do what's good for you. We've been teaching our, our young people that, that morality is all relative. And then when they graduate and go and practice on Wall Street, what we have just taught them in the class is why, oh, why do we put them behind bars? Why do we put them behind bars? And the interviewer was just silent on the other end of the phone. You see, in, in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that God has basically written on our hearts his divine nature. His divine nature. The law of God, right, was written on our hearts. And this law of God is perfectly embodied in Jesus Christ. That's why in verse 37, Jesus says, I have come to bear witness to the truth. Jesus shows up and he is this perfect embodiment of holiness and righteousness and truth. Jesus shows up and he, he, he shows us what it means to have a wholehearted devotion to God. To be perfect in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. All these things he embodies. And these are the things that have been written on our hearts. These are, are the universal morals and values that transcend time and culture and preference and, and, and feeling and experience and background. That's why we might say with our lips that we reject the idea of moral absolute and, and, and absolute truth. But then in the very next breath, like this guy at Moon means, in the very next breath, express our frustration with people who don't operate within those moral truths. So if the argument is that everyone should have the ability to choose what is true and right and good for them, well, sure. You're free, you're free to, to choose uh, to do what, what, you know, what you want to do, to, to move away from what is universally right and wrong. You're free to try and break God's law that has been written on your heart. But the fact is, we cannot break the law of God any more than we can break the law of gravity. Right? We say this sometimes. We, we, we cannot break the law of God any more than we can break the law of gravity. I could go and put some you know, red underwear over my clothes and, and put on a red cape, and I could climb up to the top of the building, and I could try to jump off in an effort to break the law of gravity, but what will I end up breaking? Me. I will end up breaking me, all the while proving the law of gravity to be true. We are free 
to go and try to break the law of God that has been written on our hearts. But what will we end up breaking? Us. I'll end up breaking myself, all the while proving that the law of God that has been written on my heart and on your heart is true and good and right. So finally, let's look at the third argument. This one will be quick. Argument number three. Well, truth is secondary anyway. Truth is secondary. What matters most is that you do what makes you happy. You do you, all right? That's what matters most. Truth is secondary. What matters most is that you do what makes you happy. Even if all this is true, some might say, even if all this is true, that we need restrictions, that there's some universal truth out there, that's fine. When it all comes down to it, you know, it might be true, but the highest priority should be doing what makes you feel good. If it makes you happy, just do it. Right, follow your heart. That's, that's our anthem. Forget your head. Follow your heart. What matters most is that you do you. And by the way, we've got a great example of this in Pilate. And I don't have time to go into a lot of Pilate's backstory. Um, but when the Jewish leaders bring Jesus into trial that day, into Pilate, Pilate himself, does, he doesn't have the greatest reputation at that point. And I don't have time to go into his backstory, but I'll just tell you this. Pilate did not like his assignment in Palestine. He was not fond of the Jewish nation. There's all kinds of uh, historical records of some just atrocious things that, that Pilate did to the Jewish people. Um, you know, killed large numbers of men and, men and women both uh, in, in these efforts to kind of quench these small little... Um, uh, little riots and other issues. Um, it was, his, his reputation was not good. And so the Jews are constantly complaining about Pilate to his Roman superiors. Um, Pilate basically knows that he's on thin ice with the, with the empire. And so now you've got these Jewish leaders who bring Jesus in to Pilate, and they, they you know, bring these trumped-up charges. And the other gospel writers tell us that the Jewish leaders say, uh, this, is, this man calls himself the king of the Jews. Uh, he is telling people not to pay tribute to Caesar. He's saying, don't pay, no, pay taxes to Caesar. And so Pilate tries him, finds that there's none of these things are true, that, 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 uh, that, that Jesus is innocent, that he, he does not deserve death. And so he tries to release him. The Jewish leaders come back to Pilate and say, this man is an enemy to the Roman Empire. If you release this man, you are no friend to Caesar, is what they say. If you release this man, you are no friend to Caesar. And this is Pilate, who's already on thin ice. So Pilate, look at the, the situation they've put Pilate in. Pilate can do the right thing, and let an innocent man go free. But if he does, it might cost him his job and maybe even his life. He can do the right thing, but it's going to cost him. Or he can do the wrong thing. He can condemn a man to die, to be crucified, but he'll save his neck. Maybe even get a pat on the back from the Jews and from others. In fact, actually, we know that he actually developed some kind of networking, you know, uh, contacts through this whole interaction. I think he got to be good buddies with Herod for the first time, right? He added contacts in his LinkedIn, whatever. That, those were his options, though. He, he, can, he can do the right thing, and it might cost him, or he can sacrifice every conviction that he has. And, and, and maybe boost himself up. Self-promotion, self-preservation. And so what is his choice? So Jesus, knowing, knowing the, the, the choice that, that, that Pilate has, looks at, looks at Pilate and says, whoever is on the side of truth will listen to me. In other words, you know the truth. Are you going to listen and do the right thing? Jesus knows he's going to the cross. There's nothing that's going to stop that. But he says, whoever is on the side of truth will listen to me. Right is right. Wrong is never right. And Pilate responds, you know, Jesus says, whoever's on the side of truth will listen to me. Pilate says, what's truth? What is truth? And then he walks away and hands Jesus over to be crucified. Truth or self-preservation? Truth or, or self-promotion? Truth 
or self-gratification. That's a choice that Pilate had, and Pilate said, what is truth? I choose self-preservation. And friends, that's the same choice that you and I have every single day. Do we, are, those who are on the side of truth will listen to Jesus. But there's also self-promotion. There's also self-preservation. There's also self-gratification. Every single day we're faced with this option. You know, the, you know, the Bible says very clearly, don't, don't lust after a woman that's not your wife. Keep your eyes pure. Delight in the wife of your youth. Don't, don't lust after women that aren't your wife. And we think, ah, truth, self-gratification. I can click on a few more links. And the Bible says don't lie. You know, we, we get absolute truth when it comes to stuff like murder, right? You, you come up cold-blooded murder. We get that. We're like, yeah, that's, there's, there's never an excuse for cold-blooded murder. I'm not talking about war. I'm, just talk, I'm talking about cold-blooded murder. We get that, all right? Don't come up to me afterwards. Like, what do you make about we, cold blood we get that. That's absolutely true. But in the very next breath, God says stuff like, do not lie, do not steal, do not covet. These are absolute truths. These things are, these are, things are commandments of God. So we hear the Bible say stuff like, do not lie. We think, oh, man, but if I just exaggerate, it's not lying, it's exaggerating the numbers a little bit at work. Man, that'll make me look really good. If I just kind of, um, you know, if I just kind of, throw this person under the bus here, just kind of make, do a little fib here. It, I won't get in trouble. Maybe I'll even get that raise that my family's really been needing. I'm sure it's fine. Truth, self-promotion. This is the option that we have every single day. Jesus says, whoever is on the side of truth listening, listens to me. Are we listening and obeying, or are we Pilate who says, what is truth? What is truth? Who are we going to follow? What is, what, is, what is leading us in life? Is it, is it our designer and our creator who knows how we were designed to live? Or is it our own hearts? Are we following our own hearts? Um, which, by the way, again, that's, a, that's a, it, uh, this unbelievable anthem in our culture. Forget your head. Just follow that heart. That's also incredibly unbiblical. Um, you know, Proverbs 28 actually says, uh, he, he who trusts in his own heart's a fool. <laughs> that, that's Solomon, right, who writes that. Our world says, just follow your heart. Solomon says, if you trust in your own heart, you're a fool. The fact is, our hearts were never designed to be followed. Our hearts were designed to be led. Our hearts were never designed to be followed. Our hearts were designed to be led. Our hearts were never designed to be gods in whom we place our trust. Our hearts were designed to place their trust in God. I heard somebody say once that our, our hearts will not save us. We need to be saved from our hearts. And I think that's true. Let me close with this. So I've been trying to drill home uh, the point this morning that absolute truth does, in fact, exist, that you and I are not destined to wander aimlessly through life trying to figure out our way, trying to figure out meaning and existence and purpose and values, but that there is, in fact, a truth behind it all, an objective truth, an absolute truth, a transcendent truth, that there is actually an answer to Pilate's question, what is truth? And Pilate wasn't the first guy to, answer, to ask that question, was he? There are philosophers for centuries before Pilate who, who, who were asking that very question, what is truth? They were looking for an answer to, to this for centuries, right? They talked about this unity within the diversity that would, that would kind of put it all together and that would answer it all. Some, some, some reason behind life, something that, that would give meaning to our existence. Philosophers started referring to this as the logos, and, and by Jesus' day, many schools of philosophy had actually abandoned the idea that there even was a logos. We can't find it, they said. We, we, there, there must not be some reason behind it all. So imagine their astonishment when John, our gospel writer, begins his book by saying, in the beginning was the logos. 
and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, and the Logos took on flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father. Jesus, or John says, is the Logos. Jesus is the absolute truth behind all. He's that unity within the diversity. He is the, the, the reason for our existence, the reason for our life. Pilate says, what is truth to the Logos? You see how heartbreaking that is? And then he walks away without waiting for an answer. Maybe you're here today and you've been asking that very same question. What is this all about? What is truth? What, what gives meaning to my life? What is the reason for all of this? Don't walk away without, without waiting for the answer. Don't walk away without meeting the answer. You know, maybe some of these things are intriguing you. Maybe some of the things just, whew, you know, way uh, in one ear out the other. I hope not. But maybe some of these things are, are, are at least a little bit intriguing to you. And, and you want to know more. Uh, you're, or you're ready to maybe even give your life to Jesus. Put, put your faith and put your trust in him. The absolute truth. But maybe there's a little bit of fear. Maybe there's a little bit of, maybe you're a little bit scared. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about restricting your life. We're talking about putting limitations on your life. We're talking about you putting your trust uh, in someone outside of yourself. We're talking about trusting your salvation to someone else. How do you know you can trust him? How do you know he won't let you down? How do you know that he loves you and he'll never abandon you and he'll never forsake you? How do you know that, that, that he'll follow through? And the answer is in John 18, I'm closing with this. Pilate asks whether he should release Barabbas or he should release Jesus. And if you're not familiar with the story, Barabbas is an insurrectionist. It says, John tells us that he was a robber. The other gospel writers kind of fill that in a little bit. Basically, he was part of a revolution. We don't know if he was the ringleader, if he was just some foot soldier. But what we do know is that he was more than a robber. He was a brigand. He was a murderer. This guy is no ordinary criminal. He is guilty. He's got blood on his hands. Barabbas deserves to die. But the reason that the, 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 the thing that's so significant about the story of Jesus and Barabbas is it's the story of me and you and Jesus. We are Barabbas. Jesus died in the place of Barabbas. I mean, have you ever thought about what, what's been going on through in, in Barabbas' mind that morning as Jesus is standing there in that trial? Barabbas is off in some prison somewhere, probably, you know, terrifying, thinking about the nails that are going to go through his hands in just a few minutes or hours. Right? Think about the nails that are going to go through his feet and the taunts and, and the pain and the suffocation and the death. And then, and then off in a distance, maybe he hears the crowd start chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he must have been thinking, oh, it's coming. It's time. Here they come. And then he hears the soldiers coming out and coming to the door and, and opening the door. And he thinks, here, here it goes. Here I go to my death. And, and, and the, the, the soldiers open the door and they say, you've been set free. You're free. Imagine perhaps, what? How can I be free? And by the way, you know what I realized last night as I was thinking about this? Those soldiers were the first evangelists. They were the first ones to proclaim the good news. Jesus went to the cross so you could be set free. Can you imagine what must have been going through Brabus's mind when he walked out into the sunlight that, that, that morning as a free man? What if he saw Jesus? Hey, that's my cross he's carrying. He's the only man who could literally say that. that that's my cross he's carrying. Those, those nails, those are meant for me. That's what those nails in his hands, those nails in his feet, those are meant for me. That's my death he's dying. I'm breathing his air. He's dying my death. He was released. And friends, that's the gospel. 
Because Jesus was crucified, you can be set free. He, he was your substitute. He was my substitute. Because Jesus died, I can have life. You want to know how you can trust God? You want to know how you can trust him and put your life in his hands and, 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 and limit yourself, put restrictions on yourself, place your faith in an absolute truth? You want to know how you can trust him? Because the logos, the, the absolute truth, the reason behind it all is not some abstract concept, nor is it a list of rules of do's and don'ts. It's a person and a person who died for you. That's how we know we can trust him. Because he went to the cross for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the truth, and the truth can set you free. Amen? Let's pray.